0: sean weiss
1: all right hey everybody welcome to this episode of the compliance guy it is tuesday the 30th of may in 2023 took me a minute to figure out where we were because i'm like wow are we really at the end of may and going into june it's so crazy so we're just about six months into this year. Uh, the public health emergency is over. But the question is, why? No, not why <laughs> is the public health emergency over? Why are, are people, people still doing?
2: doing yeah, yeah, still doing why are
1: stuff. still doing what they're doing? So that other voice you hear is my very good friend, Terry Fletcher. So we're going to ask. The simple question
2: of why, why guys, why, why, and and ladies, why yeah. <laughs> everyone.
1: So before Terry gets to take off on her soapbox, oh geez. I want to say, welcome to everybody. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in, logging on and hanging out with Terry and I just for a little while, as you do each and every single Tuesday, we're so grateful for it. So Terry, my question to you, why?
2: Well, and I do find it funny that when you do it, it's a rant. When I do it, it's a soapbox, but okay.
1: <laughs> okay. I'm going to no. let's take two. <laughs> Terry is going to
2: get on her rant brew no, and I, fly I, I'm around I'm and rant. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not people, but okay, maybe a little bit. All so, right. one of the things that Sean allows me to do is, and it's evolved over our last year and a half doing uh, hashtag TerryTuesdays is that, and it's actually worked out for the best, is that he doesn't know the topic I'm bringing to the table until five minutes before we go on air. And so it's like, let's talk about this. And he's like, oh, okay. And luckily, we both have insight into the different topics that I, I put to him. But so everyone just put things in perspective. And the reason we're asking the question why, and we're going to focus a little bit on telehealth and some of the flexibilities that have been rolled back since the end of PHE. Now three weeks ago, uh, we just came off a Memorial day weekend and the beaches were packed. And so we're heading into summertime and I'm trying to understand why practices are still asking questions to both of us. And they're sending emails and saying, can I still see new patients under telehealth? Um, can I still have an audio-only visit with the patient? Can um, does can my physician after 2023 still be at home when he or her sees patients? And you know, the question comes up: Why? The public health emergency for all you know argument's sake is over. We're not saying COVID's over or the flu's over. Any treatable disease is over. No, that this is kind of how the world works. We figure out how to treat it. They created vaccines for it. They did whatever they needed to do to figure out what that no novel virus was doing. And now we know what to do with it. And so now we move on to whatever comes up next, unfortunately, but the, for all arguments sake, the public health emergency on something that we don't know what to do with is over and it's expired and it's now we're getting back to what we you know normally do. And, and I think people have already been doing that the last year. So when you ask the question to us, can we still see patients, new patients? One of the things that I think everybody misses about the flexibilities and the extensions and all of that, extension means temporary. It doesn't mean that now they put into law that forever you can see new patients that aren't in a rural area under telehealth. It means if it's needed, and I'm quoting what Jean Woody Wilk said at the last stakeholders call a meeting, discontinue use of waivers when no longer needed. And that was her quote. She said it three times throughout the discussion. And so one of the biggest things with telehealth was you had to have an established patient relationship prior to the pandemic. And they only allowed new patients to creep into it because it was necessary in 2020. We were told to stay home for 15 days. We were quarantined. We were told if, if your compromised immunosuppressive system couldn't tolerate if you got COVID, don't go out we're not there anymore. That was three years ago. And so what, what is your justification for seeing a new patient besides a patient just not wanting to come in because they don't want to park or drive there? What is the, the justification of not seeing a new patient in person? The second thing is audio only. Remember, there are FAQ sheets, there are consolidated appropriation acts, there's all kinds of published guidance that says, and it's, and it's, I'll quote them that says, if if you're seeing patients under audio only which is still covered for established only now you also have to document why the patient was not available not the provider it's not up to you why they could why the patient couldn't be seen audio and video or in person and then the last thing i think i'll probably touch on is that provider enrollment and i'm going to call it nonsense yes i'm ranting you know once you use your home as a provider as a location for medicare You've now exposed your home address to the public, to the public. What if you're a pain medicine provider, an internal medicine provider, primary care provider that dispenses medications and some patient or some crazy sees that on a website and now thinks your home is a place where you might have that, those drugs, those narcotics. Um, Stephanie Allard, a good friend of ours from the uh, compliance guy roundtable, She was telling me a story not too long ago where a patient was running naked across the streets and basically impersonating a physician in her neighborhood, screaming, I'm this physician, I'm this physician. And after getting arrested and it hit, yeah, Stephanie's awesome. She tells me all these things and, you know, basically putting, you know, that physician at risk and that physician was at home. It's like, but she used her, you know, place a service and put it on and she didn't have a choice. It's on the enrollment form. It's on the, you know, that's where you do business. Um and that's where you provide Medicare services. And so there's a lot of questions here, but the biggest one is why? And so Sean I can answer the why. Yeah, why
1: why physicians want to stay at home and do telehealth visits. Because cheaper. Oh no, they get to do what I do. I sit here in my Snuggie (laughs) because my wife has the house at 34 degrees Fahrenheit. (laughs) I have a heater at my feet just to try to keep my feet from getting frostbite, even though they're inside my UGG slippers. And, um, yeah, that's why. They want to be home and are snuggie and they don't want to have to get dressed and fight the traffic and go to the office and deal with people.
2: But Sean, did you see anywhere in the flexibilities that are again, temporarily extended that says you can um, see patients via telehealth for convenience or for laziness? And I know I'm being flippant. and I don't mind. I'm. I'm. No. This is a podcast. I don't care. No. This bothers me. No, if you couldn't I, tell. I
1: haven't. I haven't seen where they said, "Hey, if you just feel like being a lazy individual, <laughs> you could stay at home and do telehealth visits." But I do know that. I haven't
2: seen that at all. <laughs> no,
1: no, I haven't seen that. But I do know that if you want to prescribe your patients a narcotic or a class two through class five substance. You have to first have a face-to-face visit with that patient, and only then, in follow-up, can you prescribe a class two through class five substance. Right. So, you know, listen, I get, get it. it. The public health emergent emergency changed everything; it did. But here's what people have to recognize: it's over. We've it's over. got to get back to business as usual the way it was prior to the public health emergency you know i i read an interesting article the other day with some numbers attached to it do you know that in downtown areas okay like in manhattan right downtown new york cellular service in that area has decreased by 75% not increase, decrease. Decreased. There's nobody Atlanta, I think was 65%. Uh Chicago was like 60 or 65%. You know, it's because nobody is going into the offices. All of these beautiful offices prior to the public health emergency that people were going to, they're vacant. Yeah. Go, they're ghost towns. There's nobody there. Mm-hmm. I mean, listen, I, I understand a lot of folks. Uh, listen, I I spent, of my 30 years, I spent 27 years on the road, okay? Monday through Friday, sometimes 42 weeks per year, okay? I lived on airplanes. I was on airplanes at least four days a week traveling the country and traveling international for clients. <clears throat> When the pandemic first hit, I was like, oh my God, I'm grounded. What am I going to do? And I was like, you know, I like being at home. You know, I love being around my wife, you know, our our animals. You know, I I love sleeping in my own bed, you know, having my wife's amazing food, Um, getting to the gym, stuff like that. You know, the things that I love to do. And then it was like, you know, this is going to be fantastic. And like for the first month, I was like, oh, my God, I'm living a dream. You know, I was getting up. I wasn't, you know, having to worry about grooming myself and offend, you know, not grooming myself and offending people, Um, you know, (laughs) um, sitting behind a computer, you know, at noon. I was still in, you know, my pajamas. And I was like, this is fantastic. And you know, the first month went by and then week five hit. And you know, I had this unruly beard. And I was looking in the mirror and I was like, what is this thing that's looking back at me? And then I was like, okay, yeah. I, I don't have any human interaction. And you know, I'm getting emails. That's about it. You know, maybe a phone call here and there. Um and it, it was just like, okay, now week six week seven and i'm like holy crap this is this is not good i need to get back to civilization i need people so i am not sure how a lot of people are still coping with working remote all of my practices you know across the country they've all returned to the office uh all the hospitals i work with you know, they are restaffing, they're requiring people to come back to work. All the health systems I work with requiring people back to work. Those who do not want to come back to work are being given an option of you either come back to work or you go someplace
2: else. Um, That's true. And, you know, as I'm reading through some of the flexibility still, yeah. and again, when you see extension, that means temporary. It keeps talking about at the beginning of the public health emergency, we use these waivers for, you know, at the beginning, various regulatory authorities to enable flexibilities. So providers could rapidly respond to people impacted by COVID-19, right. um, you know, and then they keep talking about that. But here's something that's now on the flexibilities that they most recently published. It says CMS is assessing the need for continuing certain blanket waivers based on current phase of the PHE. The PHE is over. Yeah. It. I mean, one of the things CMS loves to do is here's what we do great. And then they drop the bomb on you and say, but here's now what we're going to do. And they talk about since the beginning of the PHE, you know, we've added flexibilities and, but we've also terminated some things. And they even said both added and terminated flexibilities and waivers as needed because they consider the impacts on communities and underserved communities and barriers to patients experiencing or accessing healthcare. But here's my problem with this. And this brings us back to our question. Mm -hmm. Why are new patients needing to be seen via telehealth if it's, there's not a public health emergency threat anymore? And so would you have, you know, Sean, I'm going to have you play administrative law judge for a second. So I know you've been in a lot of those um, things. So let's say that you have a patient or let's say you have a provider that's sitting in front of you and they got tagged because the um, OIG decided that they were seeing too many new patient visits, so overutilization with the 95 modifier, and it was all coming in, even though technically it's extended, and none of the diagnoses really reflected that it would be appropriate for them to be seen uh, telehealth-wise, and nobody seems to be taking that into account. So it was between cancers and palpable masses, and you know, um, neurological deficits you can't see over audio and video, things like that, you know, where you can't see somebody get up out of a chair, you know, that, those kinds of things, palpate a mass. And so um, they got in trouble for it. They decided that, you know what, we don't care. They weren't responding to anything. Then they finally did. And it looked like just routine new patient visits. And some patients may or may not have had a safety issue when not having an established relationship. One or two of those patients, it turns out, wasn't that patient using their own insurance. Um, One of those patients, it turns out, actually needed uh, face-to-face encounter because of their condition, and they were compromised because of it. So now you have a provider in front of you that has all of these visits that technically, under the extension, they could have done it, but their argument is, I did it because I could, instead of what is appropriate for each individual patient and where is your reasoning with the public health emergency over? What are questions you're going to ask that provider? I mean, I'm sure the number one is, did that patient have a compromised immune system where you felt that they couldn't come in in person? And, you know, if the doctor said no, then how would you treat that? I mean, I know sometimes you have to look at technicalities to get doctors out of trouble, But think of yourself as, you know, um, a judge at this point, compliance wise, best practices, keeping yourself out of having to talk to you. What what would you offer?
1: Yeah. You know, so if I were a judge. Right. And, you know, a a provider or a group of providers came before me and the the allegations against them were they misused the telehealth services um from the perspective of they did it purely from a convenience standpoint um the pay convenience or financial right and or yeah well financial financial is a, a different at least in my head financial would be a different argument because okay. then I would be compelled to look at the False Claims Act or a reverse false claims act or the healthcare fraud statute. Now, again, remember okay. administrative law judges don't do that. So let's just say I'm not okay. an ALJ. Let's just say I was a federal uh uh, uh judge, right? Okay. Uh hearing both civil and criminal matters. Okay. so the OIG said you know, they made a referral to the Department of Justice because they believed that physicians were misusing um, the telehealth services um, and they were doing so uh, strictly from a convenience standpoint, something that maybe was a civil matter, right? So my question to the physicians would be, you know, because judges get to ask questions of the witnesses. My my questions would be things along the line of, you know, so physician or doctor, help me to understand that you decided to bring patients into a virtual visit rather than bringing them into your practice. Because it was convenient, right? There was no, to your point, Terry, no issue with their immune system. You know, you know, patients could or could not wear masks. It was voluntary at this point because there's no more state mandates, you know. Right.
2: Everybody's vaccinated in and out of the office. They're all OSHA protected. I mean,
1: not everybody's vaccinated, but, you know, know, we hit herd uh, immunity, right? You know, I think it's what, 90% or 95%. For herd immunity, um, <clears throat> so you basically were able to see more patients in a day. You were able to do it conveniently, and you know um, the problem with that is Medicare doesn't pay you for anything that's convenient. It, it it's the same thing as saying, well, you know, you discharged a patient at five o'clock at night, but they couldn't get a ride home, so you just decided for convenience, you know, for the patient to keep them in the hospital one more day. You don't get paid for that. You don't get paid because you were doing something out of convenience for you or the patient. You get paid because the service was medically appropriate, medically necessary, and medically reasonable. So in a situation like that, you know, being a judge, but now remember not hearing a compelling argument from the defense counsel. Let's just say defense counsel was really incompetent and they did a horrible job of presenting their case so as a judge you know i'm left with no choice but to say you know i find in favor of the government and you know the civil monetary penalties damages would be anywhere from double to treble damages uh from what was unlawfully claimed and that would be the end of it and then they would most likely get referred to the um state medical board for sanctioning. Um, meaning either suspension or revocation of their medical license to practice, they would be excluded from the federal payer program because they were found guilty of violating the Civil False Claims Act. Um, so now you're excluded for at least 10 years. So good luck ever getting back into healthcare as a provider after that. Yeah, it'd be a terrible situation. Now, if If it was determined that, you know, the provider created a scheme or an artifice to inflate their revenues um, and they were just willy nilly, you know, seeing patients that it wasn't medically necessary and they were billing everything at level fours and, you know, they were doing both new patients and established patients when they knew that they couldn't do new patients or you know, you couldn't do an established patient with a new problem or whatever it is, you know, and, and again, you know, barring that it was not some amazing um, you know, defense attorney in the criminal case like Ron Chapman or Colin Callahan arguing the case. Um, and it was, you know, some, you know, defense counsel who, you know, has never really worked in healthcare before or just dabbled in it you know, I mean, now you're talking jail terms, right? You're talking five years, 10 years, 20 years, depending on what the violation is. You're talking, you know, treble damages. You're talking, you know, um, um, you know, the government, you know, uh, confiscating all of your personal and business assets. I mean, you know, it's a horrible situation. Look, Stop being freaking well, it, lazy, man! It's time to get back well, to doing yeah. business the way we did business prior to the public health emergency. Period.
2: Well, and one of the things that's that's a uh, kind of a theme throughout the FAQ sheets. It's the COVID nineteen fee for service FAQ they they published. How many of them? Twenty three of them. Yeah, they started at twelve pages, and the last one I pulled up was one hundred eighty three pages. And for anyone looking for the telehealth stuff, it's now buried on page, that starts at page 74. But some of the things that I've noticed throughout, and it wasn't just for the platform used, but they use the phrase acting in good or bad faith. And so, you know, and the definition of that is what the payer thinks they're saying, we will determine, we will determine if the physician acted in, in bad faith, we will determine as, as long as the physician acts in good faith, then you can, you know, utilize these services via vir- virtual or telehealth. And to me that, I, I know there's got to be some kind of a textbook definition of it from a legal perspective, but everything I've seen that's been come up lately with CMS is they're using a lot of subjective information and insight to determine if they feel that it was appropriate you mentioned i think in your when you were in anaheim somebody said that you said the un the medically un- unbelievable day doesn't exist anymore well um actually i'm gonna beg to differ with you somebody stole your line and they actually referenced you and it was from medicare so i was speaking to a group from medicare from one of the mac payers and doing some training mm-hmm. and they said well um taking a phrase and it was funny she said it she goes taking a phrase from respected consultant Sean Weiss and I chuckled I go he's a my he's my friend and
1: they're like don't they're use like, the word know, respected we, we see you guys Sean on the same <laughs> sentence
2: yeah they're like we see you guys on on we we listened to Terry Tuesday and we also saw you guys on the round table I'm like, oh, cool. They like, we think you're brother and sister. I'm like, well, the way we banter, yes. <laughs> but um, they're like, yeah, we that's the best part. We wait for you two to go at it. I'm like, oh geez. <laughs> but um, she said she goes, and she said that. She goes, respected consultant Sean Weiss. She says, and you know, we 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 know what he does. We track his his involvement in healthcare. He talks about the medically unbelievable day. She says, We have that up on our dartboard. She goes, We and we basically sit there and look at that Mm. and use that quote all the time with our subscribers and with our providers so so,
1: and and i love hearing that they said that now when i say that the medically unbelievable day no longer really exists let me explain what i'm talking about medicare may have it on their dartboard or their target board or whatever it is but federal prosecutors Have gotten away from making the argument on the medical you know medically impossible day or the medically unbelievable day here's the reason why they were not taking into account the number of rvus that were being created by physicians for those who had multiple pas or nurse practitioners working under them they were not taking into consideration the incident too so you know, there's no restrictions like you have in anesthesia. You know, where you know a, a, an anesthesiologist can only supervise four, you know, um, um, you know uh, anesthetists during a given hour. There's no restriction as to how many PAs or NPs uh, a physician can supervise. So, you know, they could have you know four PAs, two NPs working under them. And you know, they're generating thousands of RVUs. And, you know, they look at it and they the the prosecutors are like, okay, well, you know, you build for 28 hours in the workday, but there's only 24 hours. And we know you only work seven hours a day. So they would make these arguments in court. And Ron Chapman and I, in several of the cases that we've done over the last year. You know, we would have to go in and we'd have to educate the jury as to what is a medical impossible medically impossible day. Now, don't get me wrong, there are providers who have done some stupid things and build for more hours in a day than what they actually work. And those are providers who are the bad actors, and those are the ones that need to be caught. But when you have a physician that has three, four, five non- you know, non-physician practitioners working under them, they're going to generate a ton of RVUs in excess of what a normal physician who's solo with no, you know, uh, uh, non-physician practitioners working under them would generate. And listen, there, there's a ton of wonderful people at Medicare, at the max. I, I have a lot of them that are very friendly with me. And, you know, we consult, we talk, we we have conversations but i have to remind them that you all need to be looking at you know the rendering and billing numbers on the claim forms because if you see different rendering numbers but you see the same billing number it's okay you're going to exceed the number of rvus so you know i'm, I'm glad that they're targeting it as they should because there's always going to be some bad actor out there doing something evil but you you can't just go out and make these blanket allegations against providers who have non-physician extenders working underneath them so
2: no i think it's more the the timed visit as we saw that came up right. in one of the um the newest the r11842 cp that was they were supposed to be talking about shared visits and prolonged services but then right smack dab in the middle of it I think on page nine out of twenty-seven, they talked about medical review and practitioners use time to select a visit. Like you said, Um, they actually said they they use that statement of the medically unbelievable or medically impossible day, where it says our reviewers were used the medical record documentation to objectively determine the medical necessity of the visit and accuracy of the documentation of the time spent. If the time is relied upon to support the EM service, which we know a lot of the virtual services are. And so you're seeing a lot of 99205s or 04s on virtual. And first of all, you can't do a, a complete exam. So you just can't, I don't care what anybody says, <clears throat> it's virtual. And, you know, um, the history you could, but we're noticing that the doctors aren't coming into the telehealth visit until it's time to make medical decision making. Right. And so they have their ancillary staff doing it. And I said, well, you can't count that. Well, those are, those are,
1: those are definitely problematic. Yeah. Those are
2: where the problems lie. Yeah. They're timing the visit, but they're using the total time of the, the time telehealth by the timer. So the patient's sitting in that virtual waiting room, then they're brought into, you know, where the physician is after the ancillary staff does everything. And one thing, you know, the listeners need to remember is the reason that telehealth was opened up that it was able to be paid in parity as an in-person visit is because the audio and video. They said it has to be in place of or very similar, as close as you can get to an in-person visit. Otherwise, it's not going to be covered. That's why audio only is not going to be covered from an EM perspective ever, um, because it's it it doesn't fulfill the law or the rules. Now the therapy codes on behavioral health. Those are different. Those are time-based codes. They're not in the e section or in the back section of CPT. But when we talk about why, um, you know, for new patients, get them back in the office. This doesn't make any sense to me as an auditor. It makes very little sense to somebody in the, in you know, legally, um, audio only. Oh my gosh. Talk about taking liberties. Oh yeah. So, you know, calling patients for test results. Why are you doing that? We didn't do it pre-pandemic. And remember, one of the data point rules in CPT on page six it says if you ordered the test, there's an expectation you're going to give them the result of the test. So if you call the patient to give them again the results, which that was just part of triage, act of doing business, especially if it was routine results, you know, or or you know that nothing's going forward, then. You're double dipping, is what they really call it. Um, but moving on from that, I think hopefully patients kind of got the gist of what we're saying that it has to be in good faith, it has to be medically necessary, and it has to make sense. That's the biggest thing for me. Make it make sense. And to me, right now, and again, this may just be uh, you know, my professional opinion, but it doesn't make sense to always. And believe me, always to, too much of a good thing is too much. To always have a new patient visit virtually, it makes no sense. So maybe on occasion, there may be a specific circumstance, and hopefully that's well documented. I could see it. But as far as routinely continuing that practice, when the PHE is over, the waiver is no longer needed, you're going to have a really tough uphill battle figuring that out. And I would say you've got 50% and it's growing commercial plans that don't allow it anymore. So if it's not being allowed straight across the board, think about that as well. But moving on from that, I, I do want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about that physician at home thing. I know I've been on a little bit of a, a dog with a bone lately with that, but I'm so concerned about safety for the physician, for their family, and really what that says about the physician. Why do you need to still be at home? You know, it's it's about it's about the patient. And one thing that came up on California Medicaid, for example. It said that you cannot force a patient into telehealth. If they want to be seen in person, you have to see them in person. You can't say, no, we're only going to be That's telehealth. Right. Yeah, you Yeah, and you have to be able to offer that in person. Remember, Medicare and Medicaid, they don't cover virtual-only clinics. They don't. So I, I haven't seen it. And um, I was looking in some of the – trying to find a regulatory site for that, and all it kept saying is – references to in-person. It doesn't even exist as far as having an o- a, a virtual only. Right. And Sean, some doctors decided after about a year into the pandemic, I'm only going to be telehealth. Yeah. And they told patients that that's all they're going to see them. And they had to follow those rules and patients decided to go elsewhere. They're frustrated. Oh, yeah. And I'm thinking those doctors could be looking at some you know abandonment issues some some problems there i mean
1: pata- i don't know about possible. you but
2: i mean it's, there's some issues yeah, it's definitely
1: possible you know listen again i think it's always important to you know check with your state laws um you know because there may be preemption where the state is more strict than what the federal government allows or vice versa um well aren't
2: there things too about once you use your your home as your business, you might have county zoning laws, commercial uh, issues, a- absolutely permits. Absolutely, there could be. You have a pool.
1: Abso- yeah, <laughs> so- absolutely there could be. I mean, if you're not zoned for commercial use, yeah, that could be a problem. Absolutely. Yeah, so um
2: all kinds of things, you know, and then people
1: space. people continuing to use plat- virtual platforms that are not HIPAA compliant. You, you know, you got to be smart about this stuff. I'm, I'm telling you. Right, so-
2: Somebody told me, "Well, we use um, Zoom." I'm like, "Zoom for healthcare?" They're like, "No." I'm like, "That's not give a compliant." Yeah. Zoom has zoom bombs. You know, I I've, I've been zoom bombed before. I'm like, "What's that?" I go, "It's a couple of high school kids that figured out how to, you know, access it." I said, "And one of the things if you want to know if if a platform is compliant, do you pay for it per patient or is there a subscription? If you don't, it's probably not compliant. That's one of the best ways to determine." Yeah. It. So there's, there's, if it's free, you you get what you pay for. It's not HIPAA compliant. Absolutely. All right. I'm done ranting. I'm done on my soapbox. I jumped down.
1: (laughs) All right. Sounds good. Well, I I enjoyed this episode. I think, you know, there's, there's a lot for people to unpack here. Uh, Obviously when the good folks at Medicare are paying attention to what we're doing and what we're saying, that's always interesting. And I always love to hear their feedback. Um again using the term respectful in the same sentence with my name is always I thought it was cool. See
2: see hanging out with me, Sean, is, is giving you some credibility. I'm right?
1: I'm I'm, I'm getting a better <laughs> class of people, is what you're saying.
2: <laughs> it's it's giving me some things where people think we're in the, the center of a UFC ring, but for you it's it's giving you that respect, right? That's funny. Hey, I'll
1: take it. Listen, it's it's good for me. <laughs> All right, that's going to do it for this episode of The Compliance Guy and our hashtag Terry Tuesday. As always, I want to say thank you so much for tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with Terry and I for a little while as we get to banter and unpack and explore a variety of different billing, coding, and compliance topics. We so much appreciate you uh, taking time out of your very busy day to hang out with us. Uh, I'll be back later this week with another episode of Legal with Lyles Parker. and. We're going to start doing some of our daily doses again. So until that next episode, remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care.
0: You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the Vice President of Compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.